Wow. Guys, we're here. This is episode 100 of the Hideous Laughter podcast. And I just got to say, I I can't believe we're here. I'm so pleased to be producing this podcast every week. And I really am so glad that you guys are enjoying it. I thought I might write something down for, for what I wanted this intro to be, but there's too much to say at the top of an episode like this. And I kept trying and trying to write it. I figured it would come off better if I just kind of said what I wanted to say. Uh, so I wanted to start this episode with talking about what this podcast means to me. It's one of those things, it's a project that uh, we had really humble beginnings for. None of us thought that this would go on for as long as it did, or we would create the community we have around listening to <laughs> five idiots uh, play Pathfinder and shoot the shit and have a couple drinks around the table. This has been one of the biggest artistic expressions I've ever been able to do. I think it was episode one when we talked about how none of us are artists or, or even do creative things by trade. And this has been such a huge creative outlet and to get to share that with, with people as well as just to have a record of it is one of the things I'm most proud of that I've done in my life, let alone uh, in the past couple of years. And so one thing I want to say up at the top here is how incredibly proud I am of Emily Brooks, Steve and Haley uh, coming together every week, putting in so much hard work, both for the show and, and for the story and for spreading the word of the show, for creating a community, for keeping up with the sometimes mundane stuff like social media without the help of the four of them, I could never have done or made anything this good, let alone, you know, this okay. <laughs> so to you guys, thank you so much. And I also just wanted to thank you, the listener. I mean, your support has meant the world to us. And I know I can speak for the rest of the group because we all know it's true. Uh, those of you that started listening to us in the beginning, to those of you that are just picking up the show now, maybe you're listening to episode 100 way down the road from when it released, uh, even still, I mean, your support means the world to us. Your friendship means the world to us. It's, I mean, <laughs> I, I do consider those of you in the carrying crowd, crowd my friends. I, I never thought creating this thing that, um, we would also be creating a community of like-minded folks. I've met so many friendly and wonderful people through this podcast, and that's my favorite part of it. Yes, it's a creative outlet and everything else, but I've met so many more people in these almost two years of playing Carrying Crown than I would have doing almost anything else. And so I just want to say thanks. I mean, you guys have done so much for us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for spreading the word. 
thank you for, you know, supporting us financially or artistically or, or just being there, being a sounding board, being a person that is a part of this community. It's, it's really heartwarming, but (laughs) I, I knew I might ramble on a little bit. So guys, I'm so excited to give this to you. A lot of hard work went into episode 100 and I really, truly hope you enjoy. Here's episode 100, part one, The Song of Spheres. Do you like liquor and things that go boom? Then buckle up, listener, because this one's for you. Prepare yourself for the Hideous Laughter Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Hideous Laughter Podcast, episode 100. Let's go. Yeah. So at the top of this episode, I wanted to start off by telling you guys that I love you that I love this group, that um, I'm proud of everything we're doing here. I think this is this is a huge achievement. Griffin, you're getting emotional. <laughs> I know. I know. I haven't even had earlier. any drinks. Too soon. Uh, but yes. I'm so excited for this. I'm I'm ready. I hope you guys are ready. I think our faithful, faith, oh boy, fearless leader here. Bad start. Uh, <laughs> Griffin, thank you. Well, let's get our drinks. So, Emily, as our resident drink chooser, uh, theme picker, what are we drinking at the top of this? And and not what everybody is drinking, but what was the theme for this, the spoiler alert, first part of episode 100? We got a really great suggestion from Eric that we each make our own drink based on our character. So we've all come up with a new drink and we'll explain uh, what the drink is and why we picked it and the ingredients that went into it. Well, since you're talking, what are you drinking, Emily? Well, uh, my drink I call Freya. Uh, pretty simple. <laughs> nice name. Nice. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So, for my beverage, since Freya is a follower of Erastil, I wanted something simple, clean, and crisp uh, with a, some ingredients that I actually grew myself. So, I have vodka infused with basil and rosemary from my garden, and then uh, some lime in there to cut the herb flavor, and then just a little bit of tonic water. So it's a pretty simple drink, but it's actually really good and kind of a herbal, earthy taste to it. Nice. I like that. Hey, she's known as the gasoline queen, but I I tried it last night. It's really good. Yeah, I hate it on that uh, basil infusion. I I, I drank my words. Okay. (laughs) I mean, that's that's a good thing to hear. That's a compliment. Yeah. You've I, come a long way in 100 episodes, Emily. You used to drink the worst shit. <laughs> <laughs> Just think of where I'll be at episode 200. <laughs> Very refined. <laughs> the most refined of us. 
Uh, speaking of the most refined of us, uh, hey, Brooks. Wow. Um, <laughs> that was kind of offhanded. <laughs> what are you drinking, dude? Certainly surprising. So I was uh, having a lot of trouble with this. The ickmeriest thing that I could think of as far as a drink would be a lager in the tankard. But that's lame as hell. And so I brought a spotted cow um, because it's unique. But I really wanted uh, something else that was a little bit off-putting at first, but then really grows into something you needed the whole time. And that's tequila. (laughs) (laughs) Ickmer, the tequila moonrise. Yep. Just uh yeah, just tequila. <laughs> nice. All right. Uh Steve, what you got? Sure. So Matumbe doesn't drink alcohol, which of course right away is a problem for me, but I do. So I am drinking a gin drink. Uh gin is my favorite hard liquor. Um I was trying to find something good for Matumbe. Couldn't find it until I abandoned the the idea of looking for a gin drink and just searched for drinks for a funeral. Oh boy! What? Uh, no, <laughs> online, and I found a a uh, a drink that actually checks the gin box called Death by Gin. So it's a bunch of gin with um, with Saint Germain, so an elderflower liqueur, uh, some lemon juice, and bitters. And you guys were wondering where we're going to be in episode 200. I'll likely be dead. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's that's pretty potent, but I'll take it. Okay. Speaking of pretty potent, hey, Haley. Hey. What you drinking? Um, so, I again, I, I had a couple different uh, phases in Eclipse Life that I was trying to think about a drink, right? I could do right now where she was when she first met the party or her, you know, her childhood or even before she um, came to this kind of area as a whole, so um, which would be even earlier in her childhood. I wanted to take it all the way back to kind of where she's from. Uh, she's from Tianjia, and um, specifically, like, Liangs are uh, in our real life, like, in actual life. Um, they are a part of, like, Indonesian culture. So I actually looked up um, because Pathfinder doesn't have a lot of information about tea and job besides, like, they like tea, which isn't helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly not helpful. <laughs> so um, I looked up some Indonesian drinks, and um, I did find one that sounded really good. It has um, white rum, mango, coconut milk, and some uh, elderflower liqueur. So it is actually incredibly good. Um, it's very, it's actually lighter than I thought it'd be. It's really good, though. What's it called? Do you know? Uh, ooh, I don't know because I kind of, um, I don't remember exactly the name. I thought we looked it up earlier and it was something like the Thick Lips or something. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. It's all that coconut milk. <laughs> so I don't have a character that I play solely on this show. Uh, I play everyone else. And so I was thinking about something that would help me in that endeavor. I think through this episode 100, I'm going to be doing a lot of talking. And so I call this the vocal cord revitalizer. It is mint cucumber vodka, a 
bit of water, some lime juice, and a couple of fresh sprigs of mint. And I think it's going to do me well. You'll see in about two minutes why I need something <laughs> that, uh, that is, is going to cleanse my palate and really help me speak. Well, everyone, cheers, cheers to 100. Cheers. Cheers. It's been great. So we left episode 99 with some revelations. Ikmer met his father. You guys know that you need to go to Feldgrau, not only for Ikmer to claim his title as the pack lord of the Shutterwood, but also to stop the Whispering Way, who has created a foothold in that town. Rickmet, Nickmer's father, told you that if you're going to be successful, and that's a big if just to begin with, you're going to need a little bit of help from the divine. You have a scroll that will allow you to commune with Desna at the top of the stairs of the moon in the observatory known as High Throne by activating the Dusk Moth, one of her holiest relics. And so you do. Where we left off, you climbed the tower and you entered with some of the prince's wolves there to assist you as you perform the ritual. You arrive in the morning but we find our characters now looking up through the observatory glass and into the sky as it darkens. You each feel the chill of a crisp night on your skin, and the sky above you deepens in color. Starting as a dark royal blue, the heavens take on a rich indigo hue, then shift even deeper to purple, finally settling into an almost lightless black. One by one, stars begin to fill the infinite void above you, illuminating the inky blackness in between. Finally, the North Star, Sinusure, begins to grow, its pale light washing High Throne with a radiance outshining even the brightest of the other stars in the night sky. As the North Star descends, the shape of a beautiful elven woman begins to appear from its heart. She wears a coy half-smile and a slender blue gown hugging her figure. As if all lending to her brightness, each of the other stars in the night sky seems to duplicate a perfect copy of itself. And these newly formed pinpricks of light descend to the emerging woman, coalescing around her form into butterfly wings. The wings appear blindingly resplendent behind her, washing her in flattering tones, but with the deep negative space of the night sky within the wings forming whorls and patterns, a sharp contrast to their starlight edges. As the slender elven woman steps out of Sinusher's brilliant aura, 
the celestial body itself scatters into thousands of shimmering butterflies, fluttering up to join the remaining stars in the night sky. The beautiful elven woman's starlight wings beat slowly, as if to keep her aloft, though her body levitates perfectly in the air. And then she speaks. I appear before you, travelers, to thank you for restoring the sanctity this place once held. I've missed having a temple for travelers to rest their weary heads within this dangerous wood. Woods where neither sunlight nor starlight in the night sky reaches all the way to the forest floor. My followers don't often construct temples this grand, you know. So there are a few places like this in the known world. She chuckles to herself, and the coy half-smile reappears on her face. I have many names, but you may call me by the one most widely known to the people of this world, Desna. I've been expecting you for some time, long before you entered these woods all those days ago, and even longer than when you all set foot on this nation's soil for the first time. Although none of you identify as a dedicated follower of mine, I feel that I must deliver a message to you from the gods. For you have drawn the attention of our mighty pantheon. They call you saviors of the living. Upon saying this, her demeanor shifts, wings still beating, albeit more deliberately now, as if to become a bit more reserved. Allow me to explain myself, for you certainly don't know what's in store for you. Having attracted the notice of the divine, I gift unto you a glimpse of what could be, though your ultimate fate remains a mystery. Do not fear what you see, for the future is perpetually in motion. What you will each experience is only one of an infinite number of possibilities, a flicker of a star's light across the night sky, as fleeting as a dream, but no less possible than any future that may come to pass. As she says this, your vision fades. And the four of you smell forest, but also the smoke of a peaceful campfire. The succulent meat of a wild animal crackles on a spit above the flames. Matumbe, Eclipse, and Ikmer, familiarity sets in as you slowly realize when you look across the flames that this is the last time you made camp with Lyra. Unlike the first time, though, something is different. Instead of sitting in a circle around the warm glow of the fire, all three of you are on the same side of the blaze, looking across the campfire to your late companion. Lyra, her face lit from below by the jumping flames, looks directly into the eyes of Ikmer, her eyes unblinking, and lines of worry stretch across her forehead. She mouths something, but no sound escapes her lips. All you hear are the flames and an increasingly loud crackling of roasted meat. The light intensifies, and the animal on the spit begins to catch fire itself. Lyra pulls a card, seemingly at random, from her harrow deck. She shows it to you, and once again you see the Prince of Wolves. But this time the tiger no longer stalks the wolf. Both animals stand atop the hill, locked in bloody combat. 
The wolf appears more monstrous and less humanoid than ever before, and the tiger's head has grown devil horns and barbs protrude all over its body, both animals dripping gore from their mouths and are covered in grievous wounds, apparently inflicted on each other with the shape of a crown hanging in the burning sky above both. Where once wolves alone surrounded the hill in a ring, those wolves are now locked in a deadly combat amongst themselves and shambling corpses that appear to be clawing at the backs of the creatures otherwise occupied with fighting each other. Suddenly, your vision stretches and the flames elongate as you're pulled across the fire and into the Prince of Wolves card itself. Your world becomes the paint on the card and everything around appears as the creation of some mad artist. The tiger and wolf made of brush strokes are still locked in a desperate conflict, but now you can see much more than just the hill they stand on and the battle between the wolves and the dead just immediately around them. As far as the eye can see stretches a decimated town of painted buildings, all colors seeming to run together at their edges. Splashes of red oil paint crash from the heavens as if some godlike painter is raining artistic blood down on the wolves and the dead. The blood paint smearing the landscape, creating sick tie-dyes of scenery and creatures. Though seemingly not real, the paint smells coppery like blood, and the shambling caricatures of the dead reek of rot and decay. The wolves and the dead continue to crash into each other in this madman's wonderland, becoming less and less distinct from each other the longer you watch. Even the tiger and the wolf once so diametrically opposed, are becoming one smear of red. You turn towards a dilapidated tower, seemingly in shambles, before its colors have begun to run with the landscape, sagging under its own weight, the brown of the wood mixing with the grays of stone and the oily red of blood. Suddenly, the heat you've been feeling fades, and an empty, chill void takes its place. It's hard to draw breath anymore. Darker than any night, huge brushstrokes slash across the sky, leaving behind a writhing shadow looming over you. Beneath the shadow, a lone figure, features indistinct, exits the melting tower and raises a hand to the red paint, dissolving the structure he just exited. The red paint seeps into the ground and a mangled group of corpses erupts from the soft earth around him, themselves a mess of painted body parts, red stain, and former wolves. Color begins to drain out of the environment and into the outline of the figure who, who raised these artistic abominations. Red eyes appear, burning against pale skin, and you can just make out the pearly white bones of his breastplate beneath a vest made of stitched together skin. From the corner of your eye, you see a glint of steel and smell the noxious scent of chemicals before all goes black. Ikmer, you find yourself alone in High Throne. This monument that you know your people have used for centuries as a place where royalty sits and where royalty leads. And you hear footsteps on the cobblestone as Desna 
appears before you. Hello there, young man. I know what I've shown you is probably a little bit unsettling. How are you? Um, I'm pretty good. Uh, thanks for asking, uh, Desna. Uh, I'm a little surprised. I figured I'd be, uh, walking up to you. We should be, I know, have our places switched or something. You are the god after all. (laughs) Well, I've taken a bit of an interest in the saviors of the living. And you did call me here, and I came when called. Ikmer, are you aware of your fate? I mean, everybody uh, keeps telling me that I need to become the Prince of Wolves. Is that what you mean? Well, yes, it is what you were born to do. It is what your strand of fate has within it, but it is still a choice that you have, dear boy. How do you feel about that? Well, uh, I'm not gonna lie. It's certainly a lot going on and is is a lot to process and things apparently move pretty quick i i did not expect to be in, in this position but i would be happy to to help more people and and werewolves alike and make sure i guess uh, everybody gets along you have a a sweetheart for someone that's been through as much as you have. It surprises me, but it also delights me. I think you have the makings of a good ruler. A just ruler. Somebody that puts themselves before the people they lead. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that's uh, very kind of a god to say to me. I'm gonna hold on to that one for a while. But yeah, catch a catch a golden star and put it in your pocket. Save it for a rainy day. I, I mean, uh, when in the stars, I guess you gotta kind of collect them where you got them. But uh, it was an extremely hard childhood and growing up. It. Hulk, if you knew what my uh, path was at least going to partially be, why did you make, or why did the gods make me learn everything on my own? I could have had somebody there to at least help, and I had to do it all on my own, and it hurt. You can see, like, her smile kind of drop a little bit. 
Uh, but she looks at you and her gaze is, seems very serious. Ekmar, I don't think you would be the same man that you've become without all of that. If you had someone guiding you, they might have taken you on a different path. The path you're on now is the one you forged alone, the one you forged yourself, and the one you forged with the friends that you chose, the family that you chose. I mean, uh, I I guess I can't really argue with a god, but... I mean, all of all of this, like I said, moving so quickly, I I don't lead anybody right now. I, I don't have any experience with all of this. I I don't certainly don't lead our group of friends or anything like that. How am I supposed to lead everybody else? I think you'll learn to lead. You're the kind of man that learns from experiences. Every cut and bruise you've gotten has made you a stronger fighter, a stronger protector. And I think you'll lead this way too. You may stumble, you may fall, but Ikmer, you always get back up. Yeah, I guess that's true. The the gods and I guess you and the other gods have made sure I do that that's for sure just kind of wish it hurt less you know (laughs) and she uh, her smile returns I want to offer you a little bit of divine help then since you feel you haven't had any so far Maybe it will make you a more confident leader. Draw your sword, Ikmer. And he does so but slowly and very deliberately. Now, in order to lead, you're going to have to look the part. And we can't have a mighty leader without a legendary sword. And holy light coalesces around the blade. The handle morphs, and it becomes the shape of a crescent moon. The blade itself takes on this pale, silvery glow. It looks almost like the reflection of a full moon off the water. You see designed on the blade itself the stages of the moon you will use this sword to lead you may lead peacefully but those beneath you know or will come to know that a mighty leader carries a mighty blade beyond that well look at you look at what you're wearing This armor is not befitting someone as good and just as you are, Ikmer. It looks like you're wearing some evil man's armor, and we can't have that. And the light coalesces on your half plate as well, and those 
infernal insignias and the kind of depictions that, that were on your black armor morph. And the color itself morphs too. Again, matching the blade, a pale silvery color that looks like reflected moonlight. There is one thing I think will truly help you beyond these items. Items are fleeting. You've been having some trouble adjusting to becoming uh, all of these changes happening at once. What if I could fix that? I can't possibly say no to that. Uh, You've already given me so much. Of course. Absolutely. And so she um, she produces a cluster of stars from her hand and you watch them rise into the air and you watch them leave the observatory outside of High Throne and they kind of form a circle and within the circle the full moon appears and you feel yourself change but this time nothing hurts nothing feels off it feels completely natural to you as you become the full-blooded werewolf you were meant to be yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) no more corruption bullshit Oh, I know. This is the best. (laughs) I'm so excited. And she smiles at you, Ikmer, and says, I I hope beyond hope that all of this has made you a bit more confident. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I... Trust me, uh, I I won't let you down. Uh, right and just, one one hundred percent of the way. Got uh, nothing to worry about. I, uh, well, that's good to hear. I'm sure Shaylin will be pleased as well. She sends her regards. She's sorry she couldn't be here for this, but you didn't climb her tower, did you? Nope. Uh, Definitely did not. This is... This is just all too kind. I... It's... Well... I, I, I guess you know that it's extremely surprising for me to... To be receiving these gifts from you. While other... I guess my my path has been so hard up till now and I I don't expect it to be easy from here on now but definitely easier and I I, I seem to be rambling a little bit Uh, that's okay Ikmar you do that the kindness I've given you here I hope you will spread throughout these woods I don't know your true path, 
Not for certain, but I believe in you. Thank and you. With that, we would fade. And Ikmer, you would fade off. You'd see the smiling face of Desna just, and she'd kind of wave at you. Um, but then everything would go black. Oh, as he's uh, being pulled away, he says, and you're really pretty. <laughs> <laughs> and now the four of you hear the heavy crashing of waves on rocky shores as a salt-tinged wind cuts beneath your armor, finding its way into every crevice and stinging what skin is left exposed. The setting you find yourself in is some sort of rocky cave at sea level, only illuminated by the dim light reflecting off the water, which itself recedes every few moments before the next wave crashes in. The ocean seems angry, but it can't quite seem to flood out the cavern in its entirety. Salt spray coats your hair, collects on your lips, burns your eyes. Soaked to the bone and waist deep in the roiling surf, you come to realize that you're not alone. You seem to be non-participating, unnoticed members of some sort of ceremony, but more likely some sort of cultish ritual. Dark-robed figures chant in a low hum, and ethereal energy plays with the shadows thrown off the water on the ceiling of the cave. Standing at the head of the dark figures is a man cloaked in holy robes of blue and gold, his back facing you and the group. As he turns to the crowd, you see in his arms is a crying baby wrapped in the same color blue and gold adornments. The corners of his eyes narrow knowingly, and for a moment, all the echoing sound in the cave cuts out. Suddenly, the man raises the child up, shouts a torrent of unintelligible words in an otherworldly tongue, and the largest wave yet crashes into the cave, submerging you and all present, even the babe held high above the heads of the others. There is no sound underwater, and this time the sea doesn't recede to make way for another wave. Then you hear it. The singing of a child. Fishy, fishy, going in the dishy, make me big and strong. Freya, even underwater, you alone recognize this song. It's a rhyming tune Mikhail's daughter would often sing when he brought her around. Was it a lullaby, a nursery rhyme, something she made up by herself? You think you might have known at one point, but you just can't seem to recall now. What you do remember, though, is the letter you were tasked with. And you remember Lyra. Fishy, fishy, going in the dishy, make me big and strong, so when daddy goes home, I can swim along. Funny, you've been underwater for a few moments, but haven't thought to breathe. Strangely enough, your lungs don't ache for fresh air. Is this what it's like for the fish of the ocean, the seaweed and the coral, the sirens and the sea creatures? No longer surrounded by the cultists, your friends, or even in the same cave, your vision dips further below the waves, 
deeper and deeper into the inky expanse until the sun is nothing more than a faint memory. For a moment, you forget the sun's purpose. All existence is you, suspended in pure homeostasis with the pitch black salt water. Shouldn't the pressure this deep crush your bones to dust? Before you can puzzle out a response to your own question, light appears. A speck in the pure darkness of the deep ocean. You're drawn closer until the light forms itself into a cavern in the seafloor before you. Rainbow coral and bioluminescent sea life leading the way to its entrance, like a candle placed in the windowsill of a lonely inn, beckoning in weary travelers. You see pinks, greens, reds, and purples, all awash with the constant green glow of bioluminescent algae and the dim light motes of anglerfish. As you approach, the surreal seascape of color quickly drains, and you feel as if your soul is doing the same. Your very essence retreating with the light and your body approaching the darkening underwater cavern. Lyra's voice again pierces the silence. Carry me quickly to the sea. I long for its final embrace. My death is not final until the last ripple I made in this world is still. Suddenly, reality breaks again, and both you and Lyra breach the surface of the water together, small waves tossing you about and no shore in sight. As you both gasp for breath and cough up salty brine, the water begins to boil violently around you, as amorphous shadows writhe to and fro beneath the depths. Lyra looks at you, but as she's about to speak, a black shape erupts out of the foaming surf, its hundreds of eyes staring at you and its multitudes of mouths snarling. You've never seen such a creature and have never learned the right words to describe it. The monstrosity hanging above you bellows, and though it speaks in a collective of thousands of voices, it has but a few words to share. Now sing. Keep singing. You hear Lyra's voice become more and more faint as the waves crash around you, and you're separated in open water. The violent sea holds no quarter or peace. If the sun was once awake overhead, it now slumbers. The ocean stretches for eternity, but never meets the sky. Freya, you find yourself alone in High Throne. And you see no sign of any of your friends. Then you feel a tap on your shoulder and you spin around quickly and you see Desna once again smiling at you. Freya bows her head saying... It's an honor to have an audience with you. I'm afraid my actions are not deserving 
of your praise. I was not able to save Lyra. I was too late. I was never even able to deliver her letter. From this vision, is she in danger, even in death? This is but one of many paths. But it is one that is possible for you to tread. It appears that your late companion, friend, I don't know how close you were with the girl, but she has some greater purpose as well. And you may play a part in saving her from it. I failed her the first time. What can I do differently to make a difference? Among the saviors of the living, you, Freya, are the most wise. You may not be the strongest in combat, but you are the most capable to guide them. If what old Deadeye has said about you is true, you are a steadfast companion. They need someone like you, whether they know it or not. If you hope to save Lyra from whatever fate has befallen her, you need to use that wisdom. You need to guide the rest of your friends in that direction with you. We've formed quite the family. I won't be leaving them anytime soon. I've been saving this letter. I was planning on returning it to Mikhail. I think we need the information more now. I'll do whatever I can to make sure I don't fail this time. I believe with a bit of luck, you will succeed at your endeavors. And she places a hand on your shoulder. Use your wisdom to guide, and the gods will provide. And you see that on your breastplate and your holy symbol too, the bow of Erastal changes. And it still forms a bow and arrow, but the two parts of the bow that separate from the arrow turn into butterfly wings. When you channel the power of Erastal, know that you're channeling a bit of mine as well. Keep that in mind. It should provide you with the luck you need to succeed. Thank you for your generous gift. I'll use it well. Freya, the the image of the Erastal's holy symbol intermixed with Desna's is kind of burned into your vision as you fade out of the scene. And all of you fade in and see that the sunrise 
peeks over buildings and blinds you as you find yourselves at the entrance to an alleyway. You don't know what town this alley belongs to, even though everything looks strangely familiar. Not yet touched by the warmth of the morning sun's rays, blood seeps in between the cobblestones and runs in rivulets down ruts created by decades of wagon wheels. The blood appears to lead to lifeless corpses discarded further down the alley, pale and seemingly drained of their fluids. Oddly drawn to the carnage, you approach with eyes locked on the dead. You stride forward at a normal pace, but time around you seems to briefly accelerate, though no sign of life emerges from the surrounding houses or shops. By the time you reach the bodies, the sun is crested far enough over the top of the adjacent buildings to not only wash over you, but to shorten the shadows in the alley as well until the entirety of the way is illuminated. Under the revealing light of the morning sun, horror develops before your very eyes. The blood on the cobblestones has solidified to a sticky rust-colored substance, and the bodies once dry and desiccated before you begin to dissolve into ash under the sun's rays. Though silence once filled the alley, the quiet is broken by an unnaturally amplified sound. Teeth tumble and click on the warm stones. Or are they fangs? Suddenly, perspective shifts again. Ikmer, Freya, and Eclipse find themselves seated side by side in a dark grand hall. The hall seems regal, but the braziers lining it appear as if they haven't been lit in centuries. Dark art and stained glass scenery adorn the walls, but there isn't enough light to illuminate the subject matter portrayed. Looking down, the three companions find themselves seated at the foot of a long table, stretching into the distance with indistinctly pale, gaunt figures occupying the other chairs. A man at the head of the table stands to address the guests. But at this distance, not Ikmer, Freya, nor Eclipse can hear his words or discern his features. As the three companions look around, someone's missing. Nowhere in the hall can they spy the distinct figure of their traveling companion, Matumbe. She won't let me show it to you. She doesn't want you to see. Inquisitor, your goddess is worried you will stray from your path. I will show you what I can for as long as I am able. You must observe what you can and commit it all to memory. Matumbe, you're now able to see your friends sitting at the end of a long table, but the rest of the room is a blur. You hear the muffled sounds of conversation, of agreement. Then you hear something clear as day. A little girl's voice. Daddy, help me. You look around for the source of the sound, but the room begins to warp around you table once formed of hard timber bends and morphs above the heads of the people seated at it, becoming a thatch-roofed hut, and all your comrades, alive and well but a moment ago, are corpses on the ground in front of you. Daddy, help me! Daddy, please! 
you raise your holy text in your hands, beginning a prayer for Phrasma's intercession. But the spiral forged onto the iron-bound tome begins to sear your flesh and distracts you from the liturgy you began to recite. Suddenly, the pages of the book flip open to the text. Not this year, not yet. You turn the pages rapidly, the burning sensation growing as you do. This is your book, written in your handwriting, in the languages you know, but every word and phrase replaced with the passage, not this year, not yet, not this year, not yet. Every bit of text has been replaced, printed passages, citations, handwritten notes, everything. The young girl's voice gets louder. Daddy, help me. Daddy, please. Suddenly, as if bursting out of the air itself, Matumbe appears before the rest of you in the Grand Hall, his body engulfed entirely in a pyre of white-hot flame that emanates from his hands, the holy tome of Phrasma nowhere to be seen. One of the people at the table, a young Mwangi girl you didn't notice before, jumps from her seat and shouts, Daddy, let me help! The inferno burning up the very words from his lungs, Matumbe silently screams a reply to this girl before collapsing. Flames strip every bit of flesh from his bones, then consume those as well. Nothing but ash falls to the floor of the Grand Hall. Nothing but ash and fangs. Be strong, Inquisitor of Phrasma. Not this year, not yet. And Matumbe, you go from feeling the white-hot flames surrounding you to staring Desna in the face. Have you spent so much time in the heavens that your soul has left your body like you left us on the earth? That you would show me something like this? Ever since I lost my baby girl, there's been in my chest a thundering pain. And you would show this to me now. Is there nothing left in your heart? What has happened to you? Matumbe, I don't show you this to harm you, but... To show you what is to come. And what is to come? That my goddess would leave me? That my friends could not see me stand in front of them? And when I do, they see me burn to death in front of my own child who has passed from this world so long ago, taken from my very hands? Matumbe, you will eventually be faced with a choice, and that is one of your options. I keep trying to make the right choices, but the future, as you say, is always in motion. It seems as if so many people I have met 
keep telling me that everything happens for a reason. But the longer that I keep on this quest, the more I believe that those words are false. And not only falsehoods, but actual poison. I don't know where I am going. And I'm not sure that when I get to that choice, I will make the right one. I can feel the love you still have for your daughter and and the conviction you feel to your lady of graves. But one day, these may not be feelings that you can have at the same time. One day, I hope to be able to learn the meaning of your words. I will commit them to memory. You have one of the strongest minds of all the mortals I've encountered. I trust that you will know when you've come to this choice, and you will calculate every option to make sure you make the best one. I will do what I can to help you in that endeavor. And she kind of puts out a hand and there's a fruit and you recognize it as um, one of the fruits local to the Mwangi, uh, something sweet like a star fruit. If a mere mortal was offering me a fruit like this, At this time, I would ask what sort of trickery it was. But this is part of my home. Thank you. And you take a bite, and Mm -hmm. the juice kind of rolls down your chin, and you feel this immense burst and flashes of experience of knowledge it's as if you're being trained over and over in things that you only briefly understood before you know kung fu <laughs> and matumbe you you feeling this rush of experience and knowledge you feel a bit more ready to okay. maybe make that choice. Okay. Whatever it is, the path is unclear. But you know it's coming. I, I must thank you for your assistance. I know not what choice I must make or when I might make it, but hopefully with the gift you've given me, I can be at least somewhat ready. Is when you meet mortals on this realm, even if they do not outwardly venerate you, do you ever grant requests of theirs, small ones? Indeed, that's something that many people call upon the gods to do. If you have the power to call us, I am a follower of the Lady of Graves, of the Venerable Phrasma. But what many do not know is, much like I am a father, Phrasma is a mother. She has children, 
and her youngest daughter, Atropo, is the one that helps decide the most difficult to judge fates of mortals that pass from our realm into the next. The souls of children who have not yet lived their life. If I may ask of you, please, next time you intercede with Phrasma, find out from Atropo the fate of my beloved Kiza and send me a sign. Granted. And, uh, a once uh, beat up Matsumbe nods his head. Then I will never ask a single thing of you again. And your vision fades. A gem-encrusted arch made of bleached bone stands before you on a patch of scorched ground surrounded by withered oak trees. Sickly ravens with matted feathers perch on crooked branches, their hoarse cries echoing in the still air. You walk towards the arch through this husk of a once beautiful grove and take a moment to observe the landscape through the atrophied trunks of the old oaks as your footsteps create swirls in the mist clinging to the hungry earth. The land beyond the grove is dead as well, drained and decayed from years of necromantic energy corrupting the ley lines that run through it. You continue to walk towards the arch for some time in silence. The four of you on the same path, but somehow growing increasingly distant from one another. The same mist, once lapping at your ankles, begins to thicken, and the deeper you travel into the grove, the deeper the mist gets. Over your waists, over your shoulders, over your heads. One by one, you dissolve into the thickening fog. You've been traveling in this mist for what feels like forever, but... Abruptly, in the blink of an eye, the four of you break through the clutches of the mist and, reunited once again, are rewarded with the resplendence of a beautiful Phrasman church sitting in a verdant field, a massive stained-glass cerulean spiral gleaming in the afternoon sun on the tallest steeple. Its spires stretch to the sky, and as you walk along the path towards the entrance, you can feel the church's holy aura wash over, the song of so many whippoorwills guiding your wayward spirits home on what appears to be a beautiful summer day. Suddenly, as if from some sort of glamorous spell wearing off, the vision deteriorates, revealing a sad mockery of the grand chapel you once saw. In its place... The ruined remains of old monastery walls break from the dust, masonry crumbling before you from neglect and shattered like jagged glass on a dirty barroom floor. The once lush field surrounding you becomes like the desiccated landscape you saw earlier outside of the atrophied grove. Several spiraling monastic towers reach feebly upward, their upper levels crumbling away. 
Only the sharp bloodstained blades affixed about the once resplendent cathedral give any hint that the area is more than just a forgotten fragment from an earlier time. No longer do you smell wildflowers and honeysuckle or hear whippoorwills flitting in the breeze. Instead, you smell the sickly sweet odor of death in the air and hear the hoarse cries of feeding carrion birds as you approach the building. The closer you get, the more the gaping maw of the ruined entrance yawns wide at you like the door of a huge oven, an orange glow burning deep inside and pounding like an infernal heart. The heat builds from within, causing a sweat to form on your brow and run down your back. You almost feel as if your flesh itself is baking under your armor. The more you approach and the higher the temperature rises, the more that sickly sweet smell of decay blends with another smell. It's the smell of baking, though you can't place what desserts. Saliva dribbles from the corners of your mouth and your nostrils widen as you forget the smell of death and breathe the deep hints of vanilla, chocolate, and cinnamon, enticing you to enter the oven and feast your eyes on what bakes within. Once more, reality bends. The heat of the oven is replaced with cold and a chill wind bites at your exposed skin. No longer in the oven-like cathedral, you descend on a crumbling city, a carcass of the humanity that once thrived there, glorious towers now collapsed and crooked, not unlike the brittle ribcage of a toppled giant, flesh rotted and picked away long ago, bones left exposed. The towers seem bleached white but the sun hides behind overcast clouds, only dimly illuminating the city below in a gray glow. Surprisingly enough, this husk of a town has streets alive with movement. Undead creatures move and swarm in masses, cresting and breaking over the toppled structures and broken buildings around a beacon-like spire in the center of the dead city. This once ornate tower of crumbling stone spears through the center of the city, a jagged knife through where the heart of the city, had it been a toppled beast, would be. Its walls festooned with hanging chains and cruel barbed hooks impaling countless preserved corpses. A haze of dust perpetually falls from the towering obelisk, almost as if the stone itself is rotting, its dusk coating the undead masses below like fungal spores and washing all color away. A stairway of entwined skeletons spirals around the perimeter of the tower, their bones forming a path to ascend the structure, and swirling phantoms howl and scream in a furious storm of unquiet dead around the spire's dizzying heights. The only entrance into the windowless tower appears to be a pair of massive doors at the fortress's base. The dead seem to part before you, and your steps leave footprints in the gray dust as more rains down from above like falling snow. The closer you get to the tower and deeper your journey into the bleached bones of the city, the louder the sound of huge beating wings. A shadow several buildings wide races past as a blast of purple flames momentarily blinds you. When you regain your vision, Somehow, you've been transported atop the tower, face to face with an undead being crackling with a miasma of arcane energy. Through a skinless mouth, 
the lich lets out rasping, hideous laughter as it points towards you and lightning emanates from its gnarled finger. Then, once again, darkness. And as the darkness fades, Eclipse, you find yourself atop high throne, alone. But this feeling is different for you. You don't feel the presence of any of the spirits that have been along for your journey. It's eerily quiet in your head. And you hear the approach of someone and Desna comes into view. Hello there, Eclipse. Uh, hello? I wanted to talk to you after everything I've shown you and your companions. I recognize an evil inside you, a corruption of your soul. And I wonder, after seeing where your path might lead, how you could tread that path with something like that living inside of you. Um, well, honestly, I'm not really sure exactly what you're expecting from us based on this. This is a lot uh, for anyone, regardless of what's going on inside. Well, nothing is expected of you, Eclipse, but word is getting around about the four of you pursuing the Whispering Way, the agents of death on Galarian, the agents of undeath, rather. I suppose if you weren't on our side, you might have found a temple of Ergothoa to commune with her. But instead you're here with your companions, and they seem to trust you enough. Well, I, I mean, ultimately, right, I want to be with friends and family, and I don't want to be alone. If this group of people here have become like a second family that I don't have anywhere else, I want to make sure I'm with them, regardless of what's going on in my head. Well, for you to follow where they tread, the things you've seen may come to pass. What I'm getting at, Eclipse, is I could help you remove the evil inside you, the spirit sharing a body with yours. There's an issue with that, though. He has something I need from him. I, I don't know if... Can I... Am I able to, to talk to him? Before I decide? I could bring him here and give you two a moment to speak. And with that, she disappears. And you hear footsteps on the stairs 
leading up to High Throne. And what you see is a very flesh and bone Vance. And he approaches you, kind of cocks his eyes at you. He's not used to seeing you from the outside. What's, uh, <laughs> what's going on, Eclipse? Well, here's the thing, Vance. You've been in my head for a little bit. I would like to think that I have become stronger for it, but I don't always know. And there is someone, uh, Desna, to be exact, I, I talked to a god today, and, uh, She's willing to get rid of you, if I ask. And so, I'm here to make you a deal. I think that we can be a fairly okay team when you're not trying to take over my body, and even sometimes when you do. But ultimately, the reason I might let you stay is because you know where my family is and you've talked to them and you can bring me to them. So what I'm asking of you is promise me no matter what happens, you bring me to them. It's the only thing that would get me to leave this group ever right now because this is the only family I have but you know where my actual family is my mom my dad and my brothers and that's what I need from you in order to tell Desna the god that can get rid of you remind me reminding you there that I want you to stay fine just say the word I've already offered to take you. You just didn't seem to want to leave. And it that's... would be, it would be <laughs> a pretty bad thing to get rid of the guy that's helped you out so much, wouldn't it? I've gotten you this far. The only reason you and your friends are still alive is because I've intervened. That's why I say I think I've been stronger for it. But I want to make this clear. It's in my own time. It's when I choose that we go and see my family. We don't, we're not killing the rest of the party to get there sooner. These are also my family. Fine. <laughs> yeah, that sounds, uh, you know, acceptable to me. But you gotta promise me one thing, too. When we get there, and when I show your family to you, that's it. I want a new fucking body. Got it? I think I could find a way to procure a body for you. 
then it's a deal. Perfect. Thanks. And you, the lopper kind of poofs into smoke and Desna appears back. Well, have you made a choice then? Yes. He has something that I need still. So I'm not ready to give up his um, presence yet. But it's difficult, for sure. Well then, the least I could do is offer you the strength to fight your inner demons. And she touches your armor and you feel it shimmer with a ghostly energy. And then that extends to the rest of your body too. And you become ethereal. You see High Throne now through shades of gray. And then you pop back. It's as if you're shifting between planes. Well, that's going to be interesting. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care of your family. I will do everything I can. And everything fades to black. And you guys open your eyes collectively and you're looking out now at a night sky. You started this ritual in the morning, but you're flat on the ground looking up through the observatory at the night. And there's another thing you kind of feel as you, um, as you stretch from laying on cold stone for probably hours uh, and, and lift yourselves up. You feel stronger. You feel like you might have leveled up. Mm-hmm. Yay! Yes. Yeah, I do. Hell yeah. And as you get up, you look at Ikmer now. And he's wearing this resplendent armor that looks just like the armor on the Prince of Wolves the first time you drew the card. Pale as the moonlight, but seeming to sparkle with the light of so many stars. And... That's not the only thing that's changed about him. He's in hybrid form. And it doesn't look like it's awkward for him to be there. It doesn't look like he's angry. It doesn't look like he's upset. Like the many times you've seen him change before. You also see Rickmet there. Kind of just staring dumbstruck at Ikmer. 
it looks like he has a mix of pride and and almost reverence in his eyes as he looks at you. I was worried something had gone wrong. Four of you went down. You didn't get up for almost a day. What happened? Did you see her? And I think maybe Ikmer being very resplendent now. Uh, Matumbe looks like he's about to answer, but defers to Ikmer. It's his dad, after all. Yeah, dad. We, we saw her. What was it like? It was uh, certainly strange being in the stars and among them, and it's also very strange to actually talk to a god. Were you polite? I told her she was pretty as I was leaving. Mm. So, yeah. I would have done the same. And he, he nudges uh, his dad like, ah, like father, like son, right? <laughs> <laughs> the real charmers here. The real charmers. But she also gave me a, a lot of hope. There's still a, a lot of struggle ahead, but there's there's also some good. And he, uh, in, in, in his current hybrid form, he uh, really I- embraces the... Uh, the the teeth and showing them off and almost like stretching out his his arms and legs like they're brand new and he's revitalized you look strong son you I don't know that we've ever had a pack lord that looks as capable as you do right now It's going to be uh, an, an honor fighting by your side. And I was uh, given the strength of from Desna to be able to lead. And uh, she'll be watching over, making sure that we stay on the right path. That's good to hear. And the rest of you? I assume she spoke to you all. Were you granted boons in order to take Feldgrau, topple the Whispering Way? Um, I don't think that mine were necessarily specifically for that, but uh, I did get some boons to help me in my life. And I think that I have a little bit more abilities now. It's good to hear. I also conversed 
with this mother of dreams. She answered a few of my questions, but left me with many more. I'm afraid some of the visions we shared showed a very ominous future. However, I feel stronger today than I did the day before. And though we knew our fate would lead us to Felgrow, it has no longer just become a possibility but a reality. The town stands before us. This is where we must go. This is, well, this is where we will have our final fight. At least for now. Desna granted me the wisdom to make it through the trials we'll surely face. I think a little bit of her luck will be following me from now on. I hope I can pass it on to all of you. We'll surely need it in the future. There's still some information we need. Lyra's still affecting this plane. Her store is not yet finished. I was tasked to give Lyra this letter from Lorimore. I failed in giving it to her, but I think we can still get some vital information from it. It's time we read the letter. And she'll pull a letter out of her backpack and it's starting to look a little bit ragged as it's gone through quite a bit of travel to get to this point. It looks like the wax seal is still intact and you see the PL on the insignia. She gathers the party around and she breaks the seal and opens the letter. And she reads. Dearest Lyra, if you are reading this, then I must be dead. I would have preferred to give you this information face to face, just as I would have loved to see the exceptional woman no doubt you've become. But time makes a fool of us all, and the fates must have decided that my hourglass has run out of sand. Your gift for singing has been a part of you since you were a child. When I first met you, it was in a salt cave on Avalon Bay. You were singing when we brought you to safety from those that would do you harm and use your gift for ill. It's time that you know who they are and what I believe you are. A vile cult of Dagon exists in the small town of Ilmarsh under the guise of Gosra worshippers. They, along with the scum who dwell beneath Lake Incarthen, have tapped into forces beyond our reckoning from the space between the stars. From my research, and with the help of my close confidant, Horace Croon, I've gathered that your mother was used in a failed ritual to connect the town to creatures from the dark tapestry. Although the ritual failed, its residual effects are within you. The latent energy you possess is released when you share your gift with the world. Your voice carries with it a conduit between our realm and the realm of the outer gods. The call to the sea you felt all your life must be from this connection. From whatever impregnated your mother that night, the ritual failed. You must resist it. 
I wish I could have told you this next bit in person. I don't believe you are entirely human, Lyra. Our checkups and all the tests I performed when you were a little girl lead me to believe that this condition will grow worse as you reach adulthood. The call to the sea will grow stronger, and your resistance will grow that much more imperative. You must never return to Ilmarsh. I cannot stress this enough. The fate of Ustalav and maybe even Galarian hangs in the balance. If you were to return, your gift would undoubtedly draw the attention of beasts from beyond the veil. As your song continues to strengthen, the barrier between the material plane and what's beyond the dark tapestry weakens. If that barrier breaks, it could spell the end of the world. I apologize that this letter contains too much information I never got to deliver. Please give your father and Kendra a hug from me the next time you see them. I hope when you think of me, you still think of me fondly. Love, Petros. I wish I would have been in time to deliver this letter to Lyra. Maybe it would have helped her survive to this point. We must not look back on the decisions we made, for hindsight could be the death of us. We must push forward. Now we have the knowledge of what Lyra truly was, who she was, and where she came from. Unfortunately, it seems to be tied to some sort of vile ritual occultists with world domination or extinction on their minds. We are busy people, wouldn't it seem? We've got a lot of work to do. With the boons we've gained here from Desna, working together, we have to tackle each problem one by one. Unfortunately, this is not our most pressing task. It's good we know. But you're right. We must move forward. Then the path before us is clear. First Velcro. Then Ilmarsh. And as you exit the stairs of the moon with the rest of the prince's wolves, you see below you a small army. It appears that Sabrissa was successful in calling the rest of the Dorzenevs to your aid. And the Volensang, you can see their large forms among them. It seems they've joined as well. The Mordrenach aren't anywhere to be found. But some of the prince's wolves that didn't join you for the ritual have joined. You see another thing. Three celestial looking steeds with saddles emblazoned with butterfly wings. It seems Desna has given you one final gift. You wonder why there are three. But as Ikmer tests his 
new form, you realize he can run faster than a horse. And so, you can all now make great haste to Feldgrau. Is that what you do? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ickmar gladly uh, just runs alongside his buddies. Yeah. Yeah, you feel like you just have this energy that doesn't end. You almost feel like you have to, like, if you were to try and ride a horse for that long, you would explode from not being able to run yourself. Uh, it's like it's like you're a border collie, and you need to run like <laughs> you need to run like miles and miles and miles every day just to just to exhaust yourself. Yeah, and as he does, uh, run alongside. If a wolf could smile, or he, he would be, and uh, definitely find joy in this little moment. The journey is four days. You find traces of the devil wolf's presence on the path and off the path, but it looks like they've they've passed before you. You're not you haven't caught up to them. On the fourth day in the evening, you you actually exit the woods. And the whole time in the woods, it's been the four of you on the path. But you've heard the the howls of wolves alongside either side of the woods as if they're um, they're mobilizing in groups as well to join you. Outside of the wood, you find a somewhat intact farmstead. But the land here looks infertile. It looks like something has scarred the earth. Hardly any plants grow here besides scrubs. 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 What are scrubs? They're like the like the stuff that grows in like deserts and stuff. Desert scrub. Okay. Um as you approach, the house leans uneasily, its weathered planks straining to keep the fragile shell of peeling paint and cracked shingles upright. You see a tree towering to the side kind of leaned over onto the roof and you see that its trunk has been chopped but as you approach you you find that it's it's more like claw and bite marks have um, have ravaged the tree at its at its stump and then you look up and you kind of see why there are several bodies hanging from the branches of this tree. But it does seem like a good enough place to camp.
And, and just to clarify, how far away are we from Felgro? Probably an hour or two's journey. Okay. You're uh, you're in the furrows now. I do not believe we will find a better place to rest our heads tonight. We could charge forward to the city of Felgro right now. But it has been a long few days of travel, and we will need our entirety of our strength to overcome the tribulations before us. Do these uh, bodies still here uh, carry much of a scent? With your new form, you can smell that they were likely once wolves. Uh, actually, go ahead and make me a perception check. Yeah. Anybody can as you as you approach. Okay. It should be known that uh, with my level up, uh, still did not quite have enough skill points to put into perception. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. S- solid eight. Okay. But I do have scent, so... Uh, so yeah, I, ga- I gave you that. It smells like yeah. That there's... One of those guys shoot his pants when he died. <laughs> that would be a strong scent that I could smell three times the distance of normal. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, uh, guys, say, uh, definitely can tell that, uh, these humans here, uh, were part wolf at some point, uh, likely taken by uh, the evil forces. Would a 32 tell me something a little bit more helpful than that? <laughs> um, you do see, you can you can see it even from the ground. Uh, some of them have symbols of, um, like holy symbols on them. You could make a religion check. Sure will. I auto ate. I don't oh. think Matumbe knows anything about religion. Frey also aids. Y'all talk to to a god, so I guess you know a little bit. So how many aids did I get? Two. Uh, Yeah. um, Let's go ahead and find out what those symbols are and everything about them with a 42. Uh, I mean, they're they're holy symbols to Giselda, the um, demon lord of werewolves. Uh, Matsume will hold up a hand. It appears we have crossed into devil wolf territories. It would appear it would appear the clan mother Anya Savarine has been here, or at least her followers. Observe here the abyssal runes of Giselda herself. Anybody wanna go ahead and make me a knowledge nature check? Try to aid. No. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, 29. 29. Um, this tree doesn't look like a normal tree. Tree's looks, fucked up too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> looks like it's what's known as a hangman tree. Okay. And so it likely attacked the wolves when they were staying here. Looks like they killed it. The hangman tree is a creature? Yes. Oh, and it's, it, and it's dead. Yes, it's dead. Uh, it, it's a carnivorous plant. That's mm. so crazy. Hold on. Yes. 
So let me put this together. Wolves were killed by this tree who is now dead and the wolves have uh, Giselda's insignias carved into them. No, no, no. They have holy symbols of Giselle. Oh, holy symbols. Okay. I, I, I don't know why I thought they were carved into them. Well, maybe not quite so devil wolf territory as I once thought. They were here, but they got beat by this carnivorous tree. I've seen similar trees in the Mwangi Expanse. Nothing quite like this, but that's why I'm always careful around the plants. You know me. And this whole time, Ikmer is uh, probably talking to either Rickmit or another one of the wolves. Ikmer, for the love of the gods, pay attention. Well, you you were actually the first to arrive, so that that does bring up a good point. Um, the rest of the wolves begin to, you know, as you're surveying, begin to come out of the woods. And yes, you do see um, Rickmit and Sabriza and... Um, some Volansang have joined, so some of the primals, some of those larger wolves, and much of the Dorzenevs and all of the prince's wolves, you can imagine. Just during this time, though, Ikmer would uh, just converse with them from what he can perceive and ask questions about, I guess, the culture. And I'm sure at least one of these other wolves has seen the, the symbols before and explains Giselda and what yeah, he just they ignores could, me too big. He's like talking to everybody well, else. Beforehand, beforehand, before everyone else arrives, just like, oh, okay. So, yeah, stay, stay away from that. Sure. But then he would listen to Matumbe as well. Interesting way to get around the checks. I just have somebody tell me about him. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm a fucking Prince of Wolves. Somebody, somebody, somebody has me. a nature check. I somebody mean, has a- the wolves showed up after by the, like, that is what Griff just said. To <laughs> hey, you guys were there. Matumbe told you all the information. <laughs> and then, and then you, you the like, as people showed up, you're like, hey, you see, like, these, uh, <laughs> what the fuck oh. is up with this tree? <laughs> <laughs> I am so sorry. I- <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just a this is the same situation. guy that was giving me shit about the timeline in book two. <laughs> so you you decide to make camp here for the night. The wolves are with you. I think you know by the by the firelight. Rick Mid actually pulls out a um, a lute and starts playing it. And you get a glimpse at, at what, I mean, there, there's nervous energy throughout the pack, but it looks like of those packs that joined, they brought everybody. They couldn't afford to leave anyone in the woods. And so you, you start to get the feeling of what their community is like. Freya, a a group of pups comes up to you um, recognizing that you're you're, they're almost as tall as you are 
and they're kind of giggling. It's like they haven't seen a, a dwarf before. And they approach you and they kind of like get the scent of you. And nobody bats an eye to the to the rest of the wolves. This seems like normal behavior. But they they kind of like like one of them like tugs on your cloak or whatever and they 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 sit by by you by the fire and kind of at like pepper you with questions. Uh, it seems like they're curious. Like, why are you so small? Just like you have variability amongst the sizes of your wolves. My people are just born smaller. We never quite grow as tall. I'm quite a bit older than you, even though you're already my height. How old are you? Ikmer perks up a little bit. He's <laughs> like, yeah, I'm kind of curious about this too. <laughs> but never asked. Well, you know, it's not very kind to ask a woman her age. But you seem like nice enough kids. I'm pretty old. I'm a little over a hundred. And one of the, one of the uh, kids gets like wide-eyed. He's like, whoa. People live that long? Some can, if you're wise and choose your actions carefully. Ikmer nods his head like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, over under, that makes sense. Um, and they, they just seem to be like interested in you, like kind of drawn to you for for whatever reason. Maybe it's because uh, you're more inviting looking than Eclipse, uh, but still strange to them. Ikmer, a um, one of the one of the Volensang kind of approaches you as as I imagine you're all sitting by the fire listening to Rickmit play the lute and and just kind of prepare, mentally preparing for what the next day is going to be and uh, she morphs out of her large hybrid form and she's a Kellid girl um, looks maybe a little bit older than you. So I heard you knew my mother somehow. You're, you're Igmer, right? The new, well, everyone's calling you the Prince of Wolves. Yeah, uh, that's, that is me. Uh, it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, and yeah, I, I did know your mother. I was extremely brief, unfortunately, but I think about her every day and the kindness that she showed and uh, welcoming presence. Well, she seemed to care about you. Um, 
Yes? I'm just surprised she... She hadn't shared much about you until now. Well, until... Until you were somewhat grown up. We didn't hear stories about the Prince of Wolves. Until just before she she died. But she did tell them. I'm sorry for what my tribe might have put you through in the in the fighting, but I'm Luetta Sane. If anyone has a voice in the Volensang Wolves, it's me, being the, the Pack Lord's daughter. So I just wanted to say that we're with you. Luetta, that's extremely kind of you. And I want you to know that any uh, differences that uh, or disagreements that I've had with uh, your your pack and your people and I plan on well keeping them still your people there's no reason why uh, just because there is a prince of wolves meaning that someone should dictate over anyone but I appreciate your loyalty and uh, very nice to meet you look forward to uh, getting to know you better she flashes a toothy smile at you and kind of like playfully punches you on the shoulder. Um, and she's bigger. She's probably bigger than I am, right? Uh, no, kicked? I mean, it's just the way, like when she's a wolf, she certainly is. Okay. That's just the way their tribe is. Uh, not to say that she's like a small person, but because um, the, the Kellids are kind of like the, you know, barbarian folk. Uh, but but I wouldn't say like she's, she's like bigger than you. Uh, but she, yeah, she, she kind of grins at you and uh, stands up from the fire and walks back to a group of some of her people. Um, seeing Freya talking to the kids, Ikmer in his own conversation with Luetta. Um, Haley, what's Eclipse up to? I mean, I guess she would just be sitting by the fire. So, so Matumbe probably walks over to the fire or a different fire it's got a, a spit of like a pheasant or a wild bird that was caught for dinner and pulls off like a big chunk of meat um, and he looks around a couple of his friends are busy and he sits down next to Eclipse and maybe like two or three full minutes pass of just silence and he like rips off a piece of meat and passes it to her and I, I'm thinking myself that like every time the shit hits the fan super hard like end of book two hard like <laughs> it, it it tends to seem like Eclipse and Matumbe like although not super connecting outside of combat 
within those kind of combats, they're all they always like have each other's backs and end up in like terrible situations yeah. together and help each other out. They're the opposites at the end of the world. Right. So like it's these two people that nobody's really talking to and they're not even talking to each other for a couple seconds um, or, or a minute or so. He offers her some meat and says, you ready to do this again? I don't know if we have a choice. It certainly seems that way, doesn't it? It seems that the world turns around us, pulling it with us. We don't have much choice in the matter, like you say. I just... Some of the things that we saw... I want to make sure that however, however they play out, we come out on top. We have so far, haven't we? And it's been a long road, a difficult road. I've almost passed from this mortal life more times in the last couple months than the rest of my days combined. But it seems that every time I do, Freya, Ikma, or yourself is there for me. I have no reason to believe tomorrow or the next day or the next are going to be any less difficult than those days that we shared together. And though one or more of us may perish, together we will conquer. I think that we will come out. It's just, I don't think that anything will ever be the same again. And I don't know how... I'm not sure how I feel about that yet. You speak the same words that echo in my mind. And I guess the only words I can express to you right now is that it's been a pleasure. Definitely. And then she would take uh, more meat off of the skewer that Matumbe is holding and... uh, just eat that and kind of sit and stare at the fire. Right, and like, I, I can't imagine we have anything else to talk about, but it's just like, just like two vets together, you know? Like, they don't have to talk to to have a connection. Sure. Yeah, they're, they're great friends. They haven't spoken in years. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Ron Swanson and his barber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, the night progresses and the thought on everyone's mind is what tomorrow is going to bring. But Matumbe, Eclipse, Freya, you can see it all evening and into the night. Different wolves are coming up to have a conversation with Ikmer, to get to know him, to you know, just meet this person that is almost an estranged member of the pack. Someone they never knew existed. And you can see he's getting along with them famously. Amidst all the feelings of woe and and stress there's one light spot in this campsite and it's surrounding the prince of wolves finally getting a chance to talk to his people 
and you go to sleep prepared for what Feldgrau is going to bring. And I need you all to finish your drinks because we'll see you in part two. Oh. Oh. I knew it. 